Hello and welcome to Platforms and Pitfalls. I'm Rowan. And I'm Blue. And I'm Jack. And we're here to talk about the rest of the Fabula Nova Crystallis series. Final Fantasy Type-0, formerly known as 13 Agito, and Final Fantasy 15, formerly known as Versus 13. And so, just to revise... 13 had a troubled development with scope and engine issues, the first sequel seemingly trying very hard to be everything that the very first game was not, and Lightning Returns being an interesting and fascinating thing, very apart from the first two games mechanically, but paying off some of the themes and ideas narratively and exploring some aspects that hadn't yet been explored within Fabula Nova Crystallis. Jack, do you want to like recap the very, very core Fabula Nova themes for us. Yeah, sure. So uh, one of the stated themes, let's see if I can remember this quote exactly, uh, was that the fates of ordinary humans are controlled by omnipotent gods. So the idea of fate is a very common theme that pops up, particularly the fate of humans, as I said, controlled by often quite unknowable or uh, ambiguous divine entities. Humans are in quite a precarious position in a lot of these games, uh, being sort of bounced around in proxy wars between gods and things like that. So that's that's explored. So crystals as the name might suggest, Fabula Nova Crystallis, meaning the new tale of the crystals. Crystals come into this a lot. Uh, they're a rather more complex presence than they are in some other games. That Crystals aren't just a source of power for, say, the Warriors of Light, or a source for good that lets you banish the darkness. Crystals can sort of have their own agenda sometimes. They, like the gods, can sort of be quite ambiguous and quite dangerous sometimes, particularly in 15, and actually Type-0 as well. Crystals are sort of super weapons. They're not uh, apart from the affairs of humans. And magic often is linked in with this too, as something that is sometimes a burden to be able to use and something that marks you apart from other human beings rather than a skill that you can use just like someone might be good with a sword. Hmm. And so this episode, we're going to look at the two games that are maybe the least linked directly in terms of their narrative and concepts, but... They are both directed by the same person, Hajime Tabata. Last time we didn't focus on the staff too much, not because they weren't important, but Tabata is a bit unique in that his presence in 15 was something that was really part of the promotion of that game. So I think it's important to talk about him just a little bit as we go forwards. His first credit with Square Enix is Before Crisis, the Final Fantasy VII mobile game focusing on that world's spy group, the Turks. And he would go on to work on three like big budget PSP games, Crisis Core, The Third Birthday, and of course, Type Zero. He's worked on a few other mobile games with Square as well, so he's very much focused on that mobile and handheld space, which is what our first game is a part of. Final Fantasy Type-0 is a 2011 mission-based action RPG developed by Square Enix First Production Department directed by Hajime Tabata and produced by Yoshinori Kitase. So the development of this game is a bit long and complicated, like all of this <laughs> series. Yeah, doesn't narrow it down it's, very much, does it? It's very appropriate that each of the three core pillars of this franchise all had similar issues in terms of scope, intention, and platform. So originally um, announced as Agito, it was announced as a mobile phone game in a pre-smartphone world, and was intended for the next generation of feature phones. Like, this was still, you know, in an era where flip phones were normal and ordinary. 
And the very popular mobile game Before Crisis was very successful in Japan. Yeah, I think it is worth pointing out, though Japanese phones are kind of well known, that a flip phone in Japan, particularly around this time, is not a flip phone in, say, America or Europe. They are... Uh, particularly were a lot more high tech, I think, even though they shared the same form factor than the sort of things that say Nokia was putting out at the time. It had a lot of FaceTime. Like people were reading, like there were, there was, there is a gen- a subgenre of novelization written for phones. That's right. Yeah. The Keitai novel, the phone novel, the very popular Japanese franchise King's Game started as smartphone novels, as normal phone novels. Mm. Yeah. So while this might seem a bit almost comical, given the quality of most phone games <laughs> in sort of Europe and America in 2011, it's not actually that ridiculous a scope. I always say 2011. Game. It's actually 2006. Oh, that's yeah, true. Like, this is announced then. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. 2011, we have got smartphones. That is a very good point. Yeah. <laughs> One of the very ironic things about this whole process is that by the time Type Zero actually comes out, smartphones were ready for what this game was supposed to be because the game was supposed to have fully rendered 3d graphics like a console it was going to have an episodic storyline focused on player choice it's going to be online with a real-time calendar and player votes but it was too big it was too complicated it wasn't happening and so in 2008 it was shifted to be a mobile exclusive to being psp exclusive since they didn't think mobile tech would catch up in time and they just wanted to have a game that people could enjoy. But even then it got pushed back because Tabata was working on things like Crisis Core and Third Birthday. And honestly, kind of like we'll talk about with 15, most of the elements planned around for this game were cut. Type Zero is mostly other things and just shares some loose concepts with the original game such as the core character cast. It shares concept art is what I'm understanding from this. Basically, yeah. Yeah. And a lot of the world conceits are like vaguely similar to. And then in 2012, a year after this game comes out, a lot of the scrapped ideas and assets were used in a game that would be called Final Fantasy Ajito that came out for mobile phones and lasted a few years before being shut down forever. I would have played this if I could have. I think it's really important to talk about the platform it ended up on, the PSP. Because the PSP is a really odd, specific machine, I think, because it is deeply associated with multiplayer in Japan. Like, if you're making a multiplayer game in the late 2000s, you put it on PSP. So Monster Hunter was, um, Fantasy Star, Portable was on that. A lot of local multiplayer games were on this format. And so by being a PSP game, it had a strong emphasis on multiplayer, and in fact, most of the game content can be done in multiplayer modes. Yeah, I think it's another sort of quite Japan-specific thing that they've moved from a mobile game which would only really work in Japan to a platform which obviously the PSP did have a worldwide release and was moderately successful, but it wasn't anywhere near the DS. Uh, you know, it still kind of feels like an almost Japan-specific platform and concept. Yeah, like the PSP existed everywhere, but like it really only had a strong mind share after a certain point in Japan. Yeah, especially like after about two. 2008, like after Crisis Core had come out, Tabata's um, uh, first PSP game, most people had sort of moved on from the PSP. It was kind of done and dealt with. There's a lot to say about PSP and DS in Japan, but it's kind of interesting that the PSP was moved on to in Japan over DS for a while because of piracy on DS being so prevalent in Japan at around this time. Whereas in the West, a big issue with the PSP was that it was a very early target of intense piracy. Yeah, I remember my PSP that I bought secondhand 
brand had been uh what i'm trying to say it had been cracked to run homebrew software but me being about 11 years old didn't really understand why i couldn't update the psp and stuff like that so it basically broke the whole psp for me but going back to why being on psp is important for discussing this is that there are a lot of design elements, such as the very short um, gameplay sessions that you can have in this, being really designed to work on a morning commute or a return commute. Like, this is a game that is very much designed to be played on the train in short bursts, but is supposed to function as like a full game experience, despite that constraint design-wise. In 2015, it gets a console release on Xbox One and PS4. It adds a few differences. It sort of cuts multiplayer mode out, replacing them with a sort of ghost system. It adds some difficulty options, because the original game is extremely difficult and it changes the color palette so that it will look closer to 15 color-wise, which is a very odd change and brings us to the last point about its releases, which is in the Type 0 HD version, it came with the first demo for 15. So for a lot of people, this was a vehicle to get their first play sense of 15. Mm. And I get the impression it was it was uh, quite hotly anticipated because it hadn't had a release outside Japan, is that right? That's right. It was a, one of those, ah, oh, the game we never got it was Serkan Densetsu 3 it was Bahamut Lagoon it was Racing Lagoon it was other games with the word Lagoon in the title (laughs) (laughs) it was one of these things like we'd missed out on and people wanted and it is a very good game and it was something that I think people were right to be excited for but once it came out a lot of people just very quickly forgot about it or didn't care like the reviews were kind of it's good and I went, oh, <laughs> I'll get it eventually. And then maybe didn't get it or got it and didn't talk about it much. It's really interesting that I had more discussion around it, I think, before it was in English than after it was in English. Um, So some other notable things about it are its school setting. So around this time, we had a lot of military academies in video games, in Japanese games specifically. You had this, you had Valkyria Chronicles 2, and a number of other things would come up like um, Trails of Cold Steel. And I think that's kind of one of the factors that put people off it, but it influences some of the mechanics, like there's a strong time management focus in this game, like Persona, and like a lot of dating sims. So you have a lot of like between missions, you have to spend time doing things, talking with people, getting to know your classmates. You don't get to forge romances, which is something (laughs) unique to this sort of format, actually. So there's a lot going on here in terms of these systems, but ultimately, I don't think a lot of those aspects are very interesting to not go too much in detail like they they feel like a backdrop to what's actually the core of the game yeah and in fact they detract from it because a lot of the things that you spend your time doing in this free time are like these little comedic sketches with your classmates um, or fairly nonsense collect X things quests and things like that. It, it honestly reminds me of dating this recording a bit. Um, Three Houses, Fire Emblem Three Houses, mm. with um, it's kind of this serious war setting, but there is still kind of this backdrop of it's technically for students in a school war. That's actually a really good comparison to make. Yeah. And I think that here it feels more jarring because you often have what felt to me much more time than you actually have things to do with the time. Mm-hmm. Interesting. So I actually found it very hard to run out of time to go and do the missions. 
Whereas I think three houses, for in my experience at least, was kind of the opposite. Is it was really constrained, particularly at the beginning. But I think three houses is definitely in recent years uh, in the West, at least. I think uh, a military academy kind of game that's reached quite high levels of popularity, more so than Type Zero did. And I think that's just you know a decade of refinement. People understanding anime, even like I think this kind of setting is just viewed very differently. That's true. Yeah. Yep. Once again, they're ahead of the curve in Fabulous Nova Crystallis, sort of. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> At least they don't get their timing right is probably a more correct thing to say. Yeah, for sure. But let's talk about combat very briefly. Oh, not very briefly. Let's talk about combat a bit more. So this is a fairly typical PSP sort of action game. You've got a few commands that are very distinctly set up. You've got an attack, which varies per character, a special ability that usually defines a character's gimmick, a magical action, which usually takes up a lot of MP compared to other games where you can use magic a lot. This is a very restrictive magic system and a defensive action. And combat in this is fairly fast and really hard. You will die in most missions with a character or two at least. Hmm. But you have a total of 14 characters in your party to cycle through (laughs) as you die. So it's a matter of attrition quite often to get through things, but it does make combat like feel very deadly and intense. Death is a very big part of this game's themes. It really is. Um, To the point that when you kill enemies, you harvest their phantoma, which is not specifically said to be their souls or anything, but sounds like you're stealing their souls when you kill them. And harvesting phantoma does a lot of things like exploding their psychic energy, I guess. So you can use it offensively like a necromancer in Diablo, or you can use it to collect MP to keep doing your actions and things. So it's got some interesting benefits there and ties into the thematics of this game and death we'll get into in the more story section. But this game has focuses around the group class zero, which consists of 12 characters and has an additional two characters that join it in the story at some point. And I think we need you to list them all, Rowan. Go on. You mean list them all? <laughs> you want to hear all the ways in which they try and say numbers differently? <laughs> so we have Ace, Deuce, Trey, Carter, Sink, Psych, Seven, Eight, Nine. <laughs> I gave up there, <laughs> clearly. Jack, Queen, and King. And then you also get Makina and Rem, which are the additional classmates that you get in the game. I'm surprised that neither of them are kind of a Joker illusion, because obviously it's going for the cards, right? right? Yeah, it's very obviously going for the cards. But like they didn't like the two extra characters. They're not even like pretending that they're Jokers to the deck or something like. No. Yeah, I think it's interesting to see how we've this sort of been a bit of a a sub theme in a lot of our discussions of what Square Enix learns and what it doesn't learn uh, and the lessons it takes away from previous games. And that particularly Final Fantasy 13 was criticized a bit for trying to split its time across six main characters and <laughs> Type 0 goes well I guess we'll have 14 instead that was probably the issue <laughs> and unfortunately like it most of these characters are really denied any sort of arc like class 0 act as kind of a homogenous massive emotion like they all sort of feel similar things at similar times it feels like there's three characters <clears throat> class 0 Machina and Rem that's right and for the most part Ace is the general sub substitute for all of class zero and the general embodiment for of that group which i think in another story would work quite well for this like super cohesive unit of super soldiers that's effectively what they are mm. yeah but i'm not sure that this ends up being the right setting to like really bring that home because the the story is very much more interested in other things it really is and i think like the time system suggests that at one point this is probably going to be more persona like mm-hmm 
And I think there's like in the little comedic skits and things, you see a lot of like, oh, this game could have been this like big 80 hour persona beauty of like getting to know all these people yeah. and feeling like you're bonded together. But this game and the production values it wanted to present to every single encounter make that impossible. But I want to speak a little bit to the mechanical diversity of this cast, because it's really impressive mechanically what they've done with these characters. And with a relatively constrained customization system, they feel very different and they take a lot of risks to the point that I think a lot of players hate about half this cast mechanically. (laughs) Mm -hmm. But the characters they hate are generally varied, which I think is the important thing. So we've got Ace. He's a cartomancer, I guess. He's a card mage. So his main gimmick is drawing cards to get random effects that he can either stack up to increase the effect but change what the random thing will be or go for a weaker effect but get it now, basically. So he can draw up to five cards. Each card multiplies whatever the effect will actually be, but the most recent card is what the effect is. So this is like great risk-reward stuff. Jack is this incredibly slow-moving but will immediately kill more or less anything kind of character. He is almost an Odin kind of character. Tonberry? Yeah, kind of. And Deuce is a bard, basically. She plays a flute and walks around very slowly while mystical light attacks things. And it's like finding the moments that you can get away, summon this, and just like stay alive while it does work for you. And all these characters play very, very differently. It's very impressive how they function i think it's one of the most interesting about this game it's combat Mm -hmm. and how these characters vary in things and there's a lot of different combat encounters that force you to use your characters in different interesting ways and i guess it's important to keep in mind here that it's not uncommon for an encounter to force you to cycle between these mechanically terribly diverse characters Yes and no. It's So you can only have three in your current party at a time. To change out of those three, you need someone to die. But that's what I mean. Like, it, it, the game is reasonably hard. And if you expect yes. to die, then the, de- the developers are kind of expecting you to just switch gears. And that's right. Play a different style completely. Which, on paper, sounds okay. But in practice... Depending on your game, that's actually quite taxing. Yeah, because some of these characters are relatively intuitive. Like Ace, oh, you play it for five seconds and you're like, yeah, okay, this this risk-reward mechanic, it's easy. But Jack, like working out how to position him to function is extremely hard. And frankly, most difficult fights aren't designed for some of the more obtuse characters to work with very well. Like, a lot of them work in very certain situations. You can set up for it, prep for it, plan for it. Yeah. And I think, yeah, when done well, something like this can can work really well to strengthen the core theme of, we're, we're going to get onto this later, but this is a pretty bloody game uh, that's quite focused on the horrors of war. And so making every battle difficult and basically giving you 14 very different lives to expend, if you are needing to be kept on your toes and change gears a lot, that can really heighten the, the drama and the sense of sort of mm. dread and danger. But mm. you need to be able to control all the characters otherwise you're going to end up as Rowan said hating 50% of the cast and using them as little as possible or feeling like you know if a character isn't suited to a certain encounter then they're basically a wasted life that you can't use yeah and you can use lives as a resource Eidolons are a big feature of all these games so far and in this game Eidolons are literally at the cost of a character's life you can kill the character you dislike and have them become (laughs) Odin for a little while which is less useful than you would think I often like skipped over Eidolons, but it is a feature of the game. And death is a really big component of this game. And I think that leads into the narrative, which I think is the bit that you two are the most familiar with here. (laughs) That's one way of putting it. 
But yeah, yeah, certainly we've talked a lot about killing off all of these different characters, and yet they do seem to keep existing. So yeah, there's things some, some things going on with death here. Yeah, so this narrative is like deeply concerned with death and its role in war, I guess. So this is a very like serious, dark, quote unquote, um, part of this franchise. It's inspired by a documentary series in Japan called Centuries of the Picture, or Centuries of Picture, sorry. And it has, you know, so there's a lot of sepia tones for how shots are presented, the way the color palettes managed and things like that really do echo this very intense documentary style, despite telling, you know, this very sort of anime war story. And the key narrative conceit that the game sort of pushes very early on is when people die, they are forgotten. Like if someone dies, no one can remember that person. There might be evidence that they existed. Reports of them don't vanish, but no one has any emotional connection to that idea anymore and could conjure it up themselves. And very early on, there's like some scenes of characters lamenting their inability to remember people and how they manage this and how the world like manages a war in this. But the basic thing it comes down to is the crystals and these crystals that control people's fates because people have no choice in this universe because that's Fabulous Nova Crystallis. <laughs> they basically, the crystals are erasing people's memories so that they don't feel the pain, so that they can continue the war. And so this world has been in war for centuries. Sorry. It's an interesting statement, right? It's kind of saying... If people could feel the weight of death and people could remember the people who died, they there not that there wouldn't be any war or conflict, but like that people would think twice about doing it. And like that's a very nice thing for this world to say about its own world, but like that that's that paints a darker picture on ours, right? Like we do have this weight and feel and like terror of death and we still wage wars anyway. And I think it's uh, an especially dark interpretation of this this core theme of Fabio Nova Cristalis that humans are controlled by in this case the crystals more than gods that uh, again it's sort of a proxy war between crystals representing different so. nations and these crystals are sort of explicitly super weapons basically same with Lassie, a kind of you know weapons of mass destruction rather than again these these sort of distant uh kind of nebulous ideas of power uh, that can be given to the heroes yeah i feel like um crystals in this are less super weapons per se and more like more like gods like people live under the holy light of these crystals kind of and people draw their magic from them so one of the things that defines class zero is that they don't get their magic from crystals they get their magic from um some nebulous sci-fi thing that they got and partially <laughs> the souls of the dead yeah like they effectively are trying to be independent from crystals and yeah class zero is is, is this world's attempt by some people some researchers to break free from the crystals and they're also particularly special because they can be revived from death. So not only can they be remembered, presumably, if they die, because someone has to think to revive them, they don't really die yet. They come back, so they can die in every mission, unlike other soldiers. It's an interesting reversal of what we saw in thirteen, where people who are chosen by uh, Thalsi or gods, or in a sense crystals, to become the sea and gain magic powers, they're marked out by their, their influence by gods and crystals. Whereas in this, everyone, the, the default is that you are under the protection quote unquote of the crystal and class zero are the only ones who sort of break free of that they're the only ones that can yeah define their own fates and there's a little interesting tension in this with what the lycia are because so lycia and this are very much these demigods they're almost like grecian demigods in how they're fated against each other and things like that and they're extremely powerful much more so than in the 13 saga yeah i got the impression that they were um dynasty warrior main characters <laughs> <laughs> that's a good comparison yeah yeah they're taking out like huge swaths of people and you approach that level like you can sort of 
compete with a lessee, but you're not that level. But the lessee act in interests that are separate to humans. So there's talks in parts of the games about, oh, we could get the crystal to make a lessee, but how can we make sure the lessee will do what we need it to do and not what the crystal thinks it should do? Yeah, there's this, the, the crystals are associated with different states in this world, but the Lassie are first and foremost associated with the crystal uh, and follow the will of the crystal generally, which often aligns with the ideas of the state because they're linked, but don't always. And so there do seem to be moments where Lassie will refuse to fight or sort of do something a bit unexpected that politically doesn't work for their the state that they're attached to because they're following the crystal rather than the politics of where they come from. I think this game is one of the most focused on the idea of fate. Like there are points when it's revealed that people didn't have choices till this certain point and there are very few points like true free will to be expressed in this and that's not represented very well in the systems but it is like a strong component of the narrative and i guess the last main thing with narrative is we'll talk about this in 15 but there's some critique in this series about some things being left to out of game content in this it's all contained but a lot of extra narrative details are present in new game plus which add context i think the narrative holds up without that but it really does encourage you to do that extra playthrough to gain the full context, which more emphasizes themes that are already there rather than providing a lot of new information, I think. Mm-hmm. And I think while we're not going to spoil anything, the idea that you would play this game again I was surprised and interested to see that there is kind of a narrative justification for playing this game again. Uh, While the only other time up until this point that we've really had a new game plus was in Lightning Returns, where they don't hold back any of the story, but they do hold back some of the mechanics. They held back, I think, weapon customization uh, or some weapons and equipment are held back until you've played the game a second time. And obviously you can uh, do some different choices and take different quests. But here there's a lot more added. There's a lot more context and, you know, cutscenes and stuff that's added in a new game plus that you just won't get Mm. the first time around and some of these things are just simply because you have more power you can do things that class zero couldn't do originally in the core story because i couldn't defeat that boss but actually it's not a canned loss you can beat it if you effectively cheat the cycle yeah if you if you cheat the cycle um so yeah you two didn't have a chance to really play this you just sort of looked at it from afar are there any like other comments you had about it outside of what I've talked through so far? So I was struck when I watched the opening uh, cutscene. I discussed this with you two before we started recording. I was struck by how dark it was. Uh, and obviously these games do go to dark places and Final Fantasy generally does go to quite dark places. I know we said that 13.2 had quite a dark ending that sort of counterbalanced its often more light moments. But this is the most literally bloody game that they have of like properly bodies everywhere and blood spilling downstairs and things like that there's a very intense like cinematography like there's a lot of like a gun pointing towards the camera firing and then immediately cuts to like a scene of bloody bloody chocobos and things bullets ripping through people and stuff like that which if you compare it again even with the the darker parts in 13 and 15 often that tends towards fantasy violence of you know swords swords hitting enemies and the enemies falling down or sort of breaking into indistinct pieces or even being batted away as if the sword was a like solid bat exactly and and sort of crumbling to the ground whereas this it is you know it's really bloody and i think the use of guns a lot more than in uh the 13 trilogy also i think really hammers home that that quite dark much more sort of seriously violent uh 
uh, tone to it. This is very much a game about war, a story about war. Yep. Mm. And it uses a lot of the cinematic and filmic language of war documentary and war movies to do that sort of thing. I want to kind of bring this back to the core thing that we're discussing, which is the Fabulanova Crystallis, just series in general, and kind of highlight that it keeps a lot of those tones, crystals, fate, etc. But if we go a bit more meta, one of the things that I think is indicative of the entire series is just how ambitious it is. Yes. Like th- this isn't this is a cut down version with I think more story added, but it is an extremely ambitious game. It has fourteen characters that are supposed to be like distinct personality wise. They're not, but they're supposed to be. They are distinct personality wise in terms of if internally. You play, yeah. yeah, if you play the game, you can feel that personally yeah. come through animations. Yeah. and all that sort of stuff. The designs are amazing. Like the designs are distinct. The, 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 there are fourteen characters here. You know, we kind of said that yeah uh class zero tends to act as one that's not just what it always happens they actually have discussions and then they come to a consensus and act as mm, one that's true which is more effort than you need for this kind of thing but square enix did not try to skimp on this they tried to create this cast of of, pe- of of characters that you control, not even talking about all the other... There's so many Lassie that are acting out in their own interests in various directions. The story is this weird mix of like... So I've always thought of sci-fi as you take hyper-advanced technology as a contrast to very simple human problems. They have that aspect of it where it's like this, there's like dragons and magic and Eidolons and we're trying to contrast very simple human problems. In this case, the horrors of war and death but on top of that you have the normal fantasy stuff of mechanically how do we work out what we can do here because normal magic users get this get their magic jammed but you know class zero isn't normal magic users so they can still function you have religious undertones of these crystals are effectively creating dogma for people to follow and what does it mean to break away from that and is that still within their plans? There is prophecy in it because when all the crystals do the thing, then you get the person the, the person designated as Agito, which is where the, the game the game's original name came from. And it's just mm-hmm. it's so ambitious, it's mm-hmm. so big, and it's not that long of a game to cover all of it. <laughs> like, and then the mobile game that it was supposed to be, and the one even the I didn't get a chance to play the mobile Agito that came out out from this, but that game that was released was also very ambitious i don't think it was a very good game my brief brief time with it but it was very very ambitious and it's it's the curse of this whole franchise really it, it very much is like meta narrative wise i'm sorry meta discussion wise uh a theme of fablon over crystallis is just ambition like mm. the the writers the directors they had this vision for this massive thing and it's not always feasible especially in the time frame that we're talking about here not just player time but like development time yeah. yeah, because this game was one of the the later games to start development. It started in like 2006, I believe. Like it was a little bit before 2006, so it was about the same time as 13, I guess. But it was, you know, midway through, but a lot of the time was in pre-production and for a platform and for a game that this ultimately wasn't. I will say this, though. This is the tightest game in the Fabula Nova Crystalla series because unlike 13, it doesn't span across the three entries and unlike 15, it does not have just a mountain of supplementary materials. Mm. Yes, although... Still big. It still has other things outside of it, but... Technically, this is part of the Orient's trilogy, <laughs> which <laughs> consists of two other games that are 
um, but have both been shut down now. Mm. So it's very hard to talk about the rest. <laughs> it's series all the way down. Still a small game compared to the other two yes. pillars in Fabulanova Crystallis. So of the three main pillars, it is itself. Yeah, there is no easy in to any of this of Fabulanova Crystallis, but this this tries its best to be self-contained for what that's worth, I guess, because the other three don't. The other two don't, sorry. The other two, well, not that they don't, they just aren't. They aren't self-contained. You don't get everything from just one. And of these, like, if someone's thinking and listening to this and hasn't played these, and I'm sorry if you're that lost, then um, this is probably the one to play, I think, if you just want to play a good game. Like, it's the easiest to just pop in and deal with. I think the most uh, common gamer language, quote-unquote, for you to just understand will probably be 15 if you have a lot of western gaming sensibilities mm. but mm-hmm. i think this is a very good starting point to understand what makes the ambition in this series because i don't think you get the ambition just from base 15 or at least it isn't carried through i think in the final product that we get and i think with that let's move on to the most cursed child of this saga <laughs> i think yeah. which is um 15 and its development Final Fantasy XV is a 2016 action RPG developed by Square Enix Business Division 2, originally directed by Tetsuya Nomura and then taken over by Hajime Tabata and produced by Yoshinori Kitase and the final game of the Fabula Nova Crystallis series. So before we get into the development properly, I think it's worth giving a very broad run through of the sort of life cycle of this game. It was initially announced in 2006, along with the other Fabula Nova Crystallis games, and it was originally being developed for the PlayStation 3 using the Crystal Tools engine. Uh, if you listened to our last episode, you'll know that the Crystal Tools engine was a bit of a thorn in Square Enix's side and really held up a lot of development. And the same went for 15 as well. With new platforms on the horizon, it was eventually decided that they would move from a PlayStation 3 game into a multi-platform next-gen game uh, based on the Luminous engine. Uh, Discussions about taking it out of Versus 13 and into a mainline Final Fantasy game 15 actually started as early as 2007, but the actual rebrand and shift happened in 2012. At this time, apparently about 20 to 25% of Versus 13 was finished after seven years of development uh, and the directors switched so Hajime Tabata took on the main role from a previously assistant position and Nomura moved down to an assistant position. Though Nomura shifted steadily away from the game as development continued. The release was originally going to be in mid-2016. It was pushed back to the end of 2016 partially because they were aiming for a complete global release with all languages translated. At the beginning of 2016 it was also decided that there will be some paid DLC episodes to flesh out the story a little bit more. These got released reasonably shortly after the game's release in late 2016 and had quite a good reaction from fans and press so it was decided that they would do three more DLC episodes. In 2018 Tabata stepped away from the project to go and found his own studio so the final two DLC episodes which were going to cover Noctis and Lunafreya were scrapped leaving us only with episode Arden as the final DLC. The final final piece of media in the Final Fantasy 15 universe, which was envisaged as a sort of multi-platform, multimedia approach to telling this story, was the English translation of the novel, which came out in mid-2020, which means that from initial announcement to final media release, this game has been going on for 14 years. Phew. <laughs> and who knows, maybe we'll get a Final Fantasy 15 too. <laughs> 
it's it's certainly not out of the cards, right? <laughs> this is this is a monster of a game. Mm. It is, if anything, I think a lot of people focus on the sort of ten years of development, quote unquote, from initial release to release of actual Final Fantasy fifteen. And while obviously most of that is seven years of development hell and three or four years of desperately scrambling to make a game out of what they've got, I think it's actually more impressive that they got the game out in the first place. To be honest, I think one of the things interesting about Hajime Tabata being put on this particular project is he worked with some very constrained games like he did a mobile game set in the Final Fantasy 7 universe followed by you know a very specific part of the storyline in 7 with Crisis Core as well and fundamentally like portables and handhelds are much more limited than HD consoles which the big issue with that generation was games were too expensive to even make basically and so it's sort of telling like he got pushed on to like the guy to actually finish a thing whereas in reality it was almost make the whole game again as we said about 20 to 25 percent of the game was finished and so actually that's probably a good idea to talk about Tetsuya Nomura's uh, ideas and sort of practice in this so initially I think this really comes through if you watch the initial trailers for verses 13 and 13 and also Rowan mentioned in the last episode this piece of promotional concept art of lightning on a white throne and Noctis on a black throne they're very much meant to be counterparts to each other you know the clues in the name verses 13 and even Noctis indeed yes <laughs> light and knocked and so Nomura had said that he felt most of the mainline Final Fantasy games took a very broad look at human emotions and psychology he wanted to go deeper and darker and more sort of personal and really make use of the fact that this was a spin-off rather than a mainline game yeah I think we can see definitely this darker feeling if you as I said if you compare the initial trailers both are fundamentally the main character fighting off hordes of enemies but the the Final Fantasy 13 trailer is quite sort of uh, fantasy action, I would argue. It's bloodless and it's very sort of flashy and swoopy. Whereas the Versus 13 uh, not only has quite sad macabre music, but is a lot more dark in its colour palette. There's blood flying everywhere. It's a lot more brutal and harsh, I think. It feels like people actually got hit with the weapons rather than just like suddenly spontaneously collapsing around force and energy. Nevertheless, while this is meant to be a sort of mirror image counterpart to 13, it was obviously initially meant to be part of the Fabula Nova Crystallis series with 13. So a large part in some of the early trailers was the goddess Etro, who is explored in Final Fantasy 13 as sort of the goddess of death and seems to play a large part in the initial story for Versus 13, set in a kingdom that seems to worship Etro, a sort of reaper worship as it's known. Uh, this was actually sort of really pulled back because in some countries this creates problems for age ratings and stuff like that. And this was at a time when Square was really trying to push into new regions. Like this was when China and Korea were really developing a console scene. And I think we're even, you know, starting to get pushes into a few other regions that hadn't really been explored yet. And you mentioned that this game was localized into a lot of languages. And it really is one of the most intense localization sets I've seen. When you build it up, it's like a, a full screen of languages. Yeah, it is a lot. And this is for a game which is very big with lots of dialogue, particularly lots of incidental dialogue. It was one of the things that really held up development, even in the final game in those last three or four years, was needing to localize everything, but still aim 
waiting for a global simultaneous release, which to their credit, they did pretty much manage. So it's difficult to know really what the initial story was going to be. Very few actual story elements that we can see carried through from those initial trailers, which were very vague, onto the game that we have at the moment. There's a few characters. Noctis seems to be pretty much the same character, and his three companions, Prompto, Gladiolus, and Ignis, do appear in some trailers. There's a woman called Stella, who's in the initial trailers, who then seems to get sort of replaced by Luna Freya, who has a very similar design, but seems to be a very different character to who Stella was. And nevertheless, while, again, we had uh, the goddess Etro from Fabio Nova Crystallis, this was all sort of scrapped in 20. 2012 when it became a mainline game. A lot of the terminology was really stripped away and this explicit link with the other games was also stripped away. But we nevertheless keep a lot of the thematic ties to the overall series. So fate is obviously a really big part of this and Noctis needs to sort of come to terms with his fate as the chosen one, the chosen king. But I also think duty, which is something we spoke about a little bit in the last episode, is a really big part of Noctis's personal story. The idea that he sort of grows from being a prince who's thrust into his his fate to coming to accept and grow into his role as king. Etro, while she sort of disappears as the goddess, is still replaced by a lot of death imagery. As we said, we take away the explicit worship of a death god, but one glance at all the uh, iconography of insomnia and even the character designs in the clothes, you'll see there are skulls absolutely everywhere. Uh, so they kind of keep it a little bit on the down low. And then the idea of the sea, while that's dropped, is still kind of replaced by a thematic idea that certain humans are chosen by the crystal. In this, there is only one crystal, which is in control of the kingdom of Lucis, which uh, Noctis is the prince to, who've been fighting a centuries-long war with the empire of Niflheim, who are sort of a high-tech, magitech empire. The king of Lucis comes from an extremely long line that's very closely associated with the crystal and is directly granted power by the crystal through a ring, who then, and then the king can grant power to other people. So this is why you have sort of a civilization which uses magic, but magic is still confined to certain people who are ultimately chosen through the crystal, uh, which is how they can sort of teleport weapons into their hands and things like that. Uh, So development uh, under Nomura was very tough. Uh, We don't know a huge amount, but we do know that it was quite inconsistent and a little bit like early parts of 13, there wasn't really a strong vision of what they were pushing for. There are sort of stories of the the fundamental themes and ideas of the story changing every three to four months. And there is even a story that Oh, I love this so much. Like, it's so, I think it's so emblematic of what this experience must have been like, mm. this particular story. Um, oh, you can tell. Sorry, I'll let you want. I mean, okay then. So, Nomura admitted at one point that he toyed with turning this into a musical <laughs> because he'd just seen the, at that time, recent adaptation of Les Miserables, which, you know, was in 2012. And that was six and a half years after the announcement of this game. And the fact that such an idea could be considered was just, I can't imagine the stress of working with someone like that. Like, this is very... It echoes Duke Nukem Forever in some ways, although the end product we got was much better than that, I gather. I can't imagine working with that sort of situation for sure. But I also really, really want, like, that, you know, that version of Noctis and everyone singing Stand By Me (laughs) together in the opening with song and dance. Yeah, I think it's you can still feel the echoes of this really troubled development into the final game, which we'll get into in the next section, but that 
they spent a very long time not really knowing what they were doing. And as we said, 13 had this problem to a bit, and it all sort of solidified around the demo. But uh, in this, we went, you know, seven years or so announcing almost nothing, only a few quite vague trailers, almost entirely pre-rendered as well, which gave no real hint as to what the gameplay would look like. And so, yeah, it's really not correct to say this had a 10-year development cycle because it was really seven years of fiddling about trying to work out what was going on and then three years of being given <laughs> a lot of a game that's really confused and trying to make something out of that as quickly as possible. And most of that seven years was work done in Crystal Tools, an engine that was kind of infamously difficult to work with, very specific tech specs. So not a lot of that could probably be transferred into the engine they used, the Luminous engine, which had also not been complete. Like they were working on an engine in tandem with the engine itself being developed which is an incredibly difficult thing to do, I imagine. Yeah, <laughs> And this is all happening as well, while Final Fantasy XIV is having its disastrous initial release. Uh, so it is not a very good time to be a Square Enix employee. Having said that, Square Enix is such a juggernaut that like, they, it's not like they didn't budge at all from all of this. But it doesn't feel like they were ever in danger of becoming not squares, you know? Of course. No, they, they could throw money at these problems. They had income streams. They had success stories. It's so fascinating because either one of these games would sink 80% of the um, game studios out there. Mm. And they somehow managed to keep going. Uh, but once again, like 13, this had a staff that really ballooned out to two or 300 people with all the problems that are inherent in leading a big team like that without a really strict vision. And huge amounts of outsourcing too. Exactly, which was necessary, I think, to get everything done on time. So when we come to 2012, uh, this is when rumours that this game has been secretly cancelled or is actually just vaporware really start to hit a fever pitch. Uh, and I think, obviously, we have no idea what Square Enix is thinking and what the internal politics and movements are behind this. But I think it's about that point that it becomes clear that they actually need to show something a lot more concrete. And so this is the point where Nomura steps down as the lead director, Tabata takes the helm. Uh, and it's really interesting that development becomes a lot more open from that point as well. So they have quite regular blogs and they have even Q&A sessions with the developers to really show that, yeah, we are working on this game, trying to be a lot more open about what they're doing and show off that this game is progressing. But uh, something I think definitely Rowan saw, as and I'm sure everyone who kept up even a little bit with the trailers saw, is that the problem with having such a long time between announcement and release is that you've got to be very careful about what you announce because once you've announced it you need to very consciously move away from it or you need to incorporate it into the final game i think this was something that created a lot of problems and i think is the source for some of the more inconsistent parts of the final game that they've sort of hamstrung themselves with some of the early trailers or the early promises because once you announce it even if it's in a somewhat informal developer blog or something like that you either need to have it in the game or you need to justify why it was taken out uh, i know a lot of people got quite attached to stella even though she had you know even though she was only really shown off in a single trailer but she's really cool in that trailer like, <laughs> i watched the trailer like last night and i thought stellar is really cool i want her in a game <laughs> and so to take her out does mean that you're going to upset some people in today's modern age particularly with twitter upsetting gamers is kind of you know par for the course but nevertheless it's not something that you necessarily want to do particularly with a game like this where the stakes are sort of getting higher whether or not you can financially survive this as a studio because it's very different for like a smaller game to be in production hell for a while but this is a big expensive game and like this went through 
you know, being a big expensive game on PS3 to being a big expensive game on PS4. Yeah, and then and a big expensive oh. game on Xbox and PC <laughs> and lots of other platforms as well. And a kind of expensive game on mobile. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, so post-2012, basically it's all hands on deck really, really pushing to get this game finished. There was a strong sense that uh, they couldn't really keep people waiting much longer. So it's not a case of spend the time to make the game that most fits our initial vision. It's let's hit the deadline of 2016. And to their credit, they announced a release date in mid-2016 and they pushed it back to kind of fourth quarter 2016, which other games would have much bigger delays even within this series. And they did get it out. There were hints of possibly a sequel, but instead, very consciously moving away from what 13 did with the trilogy, they pushed for a more episodic multimedia experience called the Final Fantasy 15 universe. The idea being that all these pieces of media would support the main game, but everything was fundamentally meant to work on a standalone basis, ideally to sort of widen the appeal and bring more people into this franchise. In terms of playable things, we got two demos. Uh, we had Episode Duskai, which came out in 2015 uh, and was actually later updated as well. This is a game that had such a long development that even the demos got updates. Really? Uh, <laughs> yeah. There was a Duskai 2.0 uh, release as well, which added some more features. Uh, that was included with Final Fantasy Type-0 and it's sort of more of a traditional demo in that it's a section of the game, in this case sort of the first hour or so of the game, reworked to give a bit more context and obviously in a slightly earlier stage of development than the final game we got. We also had the Platinum demo, which was released a little later, which, as well as being uh, another sort of demo for what the game's going to look like, was an actual prologue to the story. It covers Noctis as a child after he's been quite gravely injured and his sort of journey back into consciousness, and it introduces us to some of the cosmology of the world as well. It's a very odd demo in a lot of ways. It's really fun. Like, I really enjoyed tinkering with it, but it's very surreal and very tutorially like it almost feels like the actual tutorial the game was supposed to have in the original release and i think it's it's a very interesting bold move to tell some of your story in a demo particularly because unless you make it very clear most people will consider a demo to be fundamentally the same as what you'll get in the real game uh, i think it's interesting to see how once we get into more of the final fantasy 15 universe the extra supplemental material i think this becomes clearer that in many ways this game ends up being made for the people who were following it for 10 years is rather than necessarily someone who heard about it when it was released or you know walked past a game shop and picked up the game then not knowing anything about it because if you haven't played the platinum demo for example you've already starting a little bit on the back foot when it comes to the game and understanding who the characters are in terms of knowing the whole story i think with all that maybe it's time to look at the actual game itself So, we've gone through a bit of that long, painful development, and now it's time to reach the long, painful game that it was about. Ha 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 ha. In all seriousness, it's not that painful, <laughs> is it? In all seriousness, I think we're going to be quite nasty to this game, but I at least really love Final Fantasy XV. I, I love it as a child, but I just want to do better. <laughs> yeah, like when you play this game, as much as there are some aspects that I dislike, and I didn't stick through the whole experience, like I'm the ignorant one for this section, there is a lot of charm to it that really shines through all its faults. And I think that is important to remember throughout all this. Like it does have a lot that is going for it. It's just 
a lot that's not. <laughs> One thing to note is that while normally we try to stay away from spoilers, we're going to be discussing the story quite a lot. If you haven't played Final Fantasy 15 and you want to, this probably isn't the section for you. We will be probably spoiling quite a lot of it. So take this as your warning until the end of the episode. And with that, let's just like start on like the big sp- ending spoiler that I think is really interesting in like what has stayed the same and what is different like it's kind of emblematic of that yeah and that is the logo it's interesting to look at the logo because the the initial logo which is the sort of woman with a large cape and the moon behind her leaning on the final fantasy words is one of the few things that basically didn't change almost from the very start it kept going but after 2012 you have a second part added to the logo which is revealed when you finish the game which is someone more obviously noctis kind of sitting and leaning against uh, the woman who we can then assume to be Luna Freya. And while it's not necessarily true because we don't know whether Luna was always in the game or not, it is probable that given we'd seen Stella in previous material that the woman was supposed to be Stella mm. and that Luna was added into this. And that sort of emblematic of, we changed some things, we made it all fit together, but as Nomura said, as long as you stick to the main themes, change whatever you like was sort of the message going into this. Yeah. And while obviously if you're a team that's been working on something for seven years, it's difficult to throw everything away and say, oh, well, our previous boss said we can just change whatever we like as long as we stick to the main themes. Yeah, I do think it's it's interesting to look at it through that lens, even though obviously Yoshitaka Amano's uh, art is normally quite uh, figurative. It's not normally directly representing things in the game. Uh, so as well as the logo, one of the other things that pretty much stayed the same through the whole development was the music. So while technically the main theme of this game, here's your factoid, is the Florence and the Machines cover of Stand By Me, the music, uh, the track Somnus, which has a few different re-recordings, with vocals and stuff is sort of the de facto main theme Uh, and that appears right back in the initial trailer and continues and is used a fair amount in the final game Uh, this music was being written over the course of the development but didn't really have any wild shifts like a lot of the other elements did and in keeping with the original plan like a lot of this music is quite somber compared Mm. to Mm -hmm. like you know obviously there are somber tracks and all the things but listening through the ost this has a lot more like quieter more somber tracks as a percentage of the whole ost absolutely i can imagine like in the notes for like we need an ost here are the things to think about like just one of the points is just the color black yeah (laughs) yeah i i think it i mean we actually didn't get to talk that much about the music in the last section but i think through all of these games regardless of how well or badly the games have done the music has pretty much always been a success it's a highlight in everything that Square Enix makes, I think. But yeah, in this subset, it's a high point of the franchise's music. Absolutely. Uh, and it really goes a long way to establishing this very dark, somber, tough, <laughs> uh, sort of painful tone, uh, even when uh, you're doing things like wandering around the open world. Something else that remained the same is obviously Noctis. His character design is generally the same. I was interested to look at the initial trailer and just see not only how graphics have changed, but just how sort of our way of, uh, or Square Enix's way of putting together faces and stuff has changed. He he very much looks like a a 2006 Square Enix character (laughs) in this track trailer. And we also, of course, have his three friends, Gladiolus, Ignis, and Prompto, sort of creating a foursome who are sort of going to be this game's main characters, it seems. 
obviously we never really know found out how important Stella was going to be but these four through the whole thing seemingly sort of part of the core of this game and that really shines through in this experience like I think that's the thing that almost everyone takes away from this game is these boys and we'll talk a little bit more about them later I think and that's one of the broad themes you know that Nomura mentions as long as you stick to the main themes this isn't an exact quote by the way <laughs> before you go searching for it uh, but uh, yeah these broad themes of brotherhood and bonds I think are really strong and quite deeply explored even more so than DLC but also our overarching themes from the Fabio Nova Cristalis series of fate and duty Noctis as the chosen king is fated to bigger spoilers now uh, is fated to die in order to vanquish the game's main villain Arden and basically save the world and sort of the solar system they talk about the star quite a lot but also the idea of accepting one's duty that Noctis needs to grow from a prince into a king and I know Blue disagrees with me a little bit in how much he liked this and thought it succeeded but uh, mm. I I felt like that was a very strong point of Noctis's character that went to make him him likable that he changes from sort of a bit of a child uh, and a bit of a spoiled prince mm-hmm. into someone who realizes the burden of responsibility that he has but also the sacrifices that his friends and others have made for him that yep. ultimately need to be repaid by him stepping up to take I agree role. he gets there I don't agree that he fully consciously makes that I feel like mm. he is forced over that threshold which mm. reduces my likability of him but yeah. that's a that's definitely a matter of like perspective and opinion yeah uh, and so I suppose that leads us into one of our two big things that we're going to talk about here which is the storytelling this is a game with a lot of story and Final Fantasy 15 generally this universe I really feel like they've got so much story that they're trying to tell that they almost don't really know where to begin and so they just kind of pick a random spot it feels like <laughs> yeah exactly yeah uh, so one early thing, this is starting almost with a bit of a detail, but uh, this is a fantasy based on reality is one of the early quotes uh, that appears in trailers and even in the main game, actually. Yep, yep. Uh, and this idea of taking the the sort of broad themes and sensibilities of Final Fantasy and mapping them onto a much more consciously realistic, in quotes, uh, modern day setting is something that actually they've been sort of looking at and trying to explore ever since Final Fantasy VII, which obviously ended up being a bit more sort of cyberpunk in the end. Uh, but this still tries to really hew to realism, often to a bit of a detriment. One of the early examples of this was the idea that characters would find out major plot points by listening to the radio or overhearing news broadcasts because in the real world you're obviously not present in the throne rooms uh, where high level political decisions are decided and you're not present on the front lines if you're on the other side of the world so this is used to actually tell a fair amount of the story but like that and also the idea that Arden has been pulling the strings the whole time and goes from creepy stranger to enemy chancellor of the empire to immortal demon king uh that's a big arc. It's a big yeah. arc. Uh, it's not, and, but it's very believable of an arc yeah. to, the, to the audience because they ha- he's hammed up. Exactly. Uh, and he is very well acted, I think, in yeah, that role. Absolutely. Uh, and so it becomes clear that he's been pulling all the strings, which is why you've been able to sort of explore the world without actually immediately being caught by the Empire. Uh, and you manage to get out a lot of scrapes because he appears and saves you and you've sort of got no choice but to, uh, you know. Take him at face value. It's like, follow him. You're very sure he's not on your side. Or stand here and get gunned down by soldiers. Exactly. Or die in a volcano. Yeah, uh, yeah, precisely. <laughs> and, and this sort of off-center feeling of unease is there. And I think it can speak to a realism that you might sort of wonder why you're allowed to get away with being quite this free. But it doesn't always make for very good storytelling. I think we can be in danger of using that excuse that the reason you can get through all of this is because Arden was pulling all the strings. It's a bit of a sort of easy justification for potentially a failing. And I think a few things 
games suffer a bit like that, where they may be hewn to realism or use realism as a bit of an excuse when actually it doesn't always make for very compelling storytelling. Unlike Final Fantasy XIII, which did have a very similar narrative of a mysterious figure pulling the strings and forcing you along a path. But unlike this, it's not trying to be an open world game. So it doesn't need to offer you any freedom. It can just push you down the story Mm. on the beats that it chooses. I think we're all pretty much in consensus, as we said at the beginning, that uh, the relationships between the four main characters are quite well explored. It's a real strong point of the storytelling that you sort of feel how these four know each other and their very strong bond. At the very least, the game does a good job of giving you moments between them. So Mm. you're not given the personality of these characters via narrative moments. You're given them via personal moments around the campfire, as they're traveling in the car, as they're walking, the comments they have to each other in combat. They're defined. They're people. They're three-dimensional. And in all the external media, which we'll talk a little bit more in detail later, but all of that, the key interesting thing of a lot of it is the character dynamics between these boys, if it features them. Mm. And much of it doesn't, (laughs) which is another potential problem. But yeah, I think incidental dialogue particularly is a real strength of this game. And I think generally the voice acting as well, compared to something like 13, which had quite rushed voice acting and localization, the acting and a lot of the writing is actually very strong in in the most part uh, between these four characters. Did you two experience this in Japanese? Uh, I did play it, did not play it in Japanese. (laughs) Yeah, because I was going to say the English side is very strong. I cannot actually comment on the Japanese version of it. So on the Japanese side of voice acting, I don't want to be too critical, but um, I... The boys' voice acting in the Japanese version is very reminiscent of Otome game archetypes. Otome games are games where you are usually a female protagonist romancing various men, and all four of these characters really strongly fit into Otome game archetypes in terms of how they present themselves acting-wise. Broody, cool, tough, and happy. Yeah, very stereotypically so. Yeah. Which I don't think in English we have those like stereotypes as strongly, but it's there. And it kind of distracted me, honestly, in the release that I played because I actually play Otome games, so it was very distracting hearing Gladio used this particular voice on me. Mm. <laughs> and I think they're a bit more... I, I, uh, What am I trying to say? I think in the English version, maybe because we don't have those stereotypes, it's a little harder to get away with placing a character quite neatly in that archetype because it can make a character seem a little flat as opposed to if, if the genre already exists, then it's sort of understood that it's working within that constraint. So particularly in the DLC episodes these characters are, are fleshed out a little bit more to give an understanding of why they act like that. So Prompto can seem a little bit annoying and loud, but you understand it's because of his fundamental lack of confidence and worry that he's going to be left alone. Or Gladiolus's general surliness, which I think really comes through quite strongly and sometimes a little bit jarringly, in the main game is sort of really understood that he takes his duty as a bodyguard exactly, yeah. incredibly seriously. Yeah. Uh, Not just to his friends, but like in, to extend it to his family as well. Exactly. I think, yeah, these 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 four characters are really well put together. Uh, and by the end, regardless of how you feel about the main story, I really think you get a good sense that the four of you have been on a journey as a four, not just as Noctis and some supporting cast or Noctis and his mates, but the four of you have gone through a lot. Yeah, where, where Class Zero felt like one unit of a character, this feels like four characters. Yeah, and I think we'll we'll talk a little bit more about this in the combat as well, which I think really emphasizes this. The problem with these four characters being so well explored is that it means means everything else kind of doesn't have much of a presence 
I want to say this, and I want to know if you agree with me. I felt interested in other characters because the main characters were interested in them, not because the other characters were interesting. Interesting. So, like, I cared about um, Lucis. Lucis? Noctis's father? No. Uh, Regis. Regis. Regis, yeah. Because Noctis had such a weird relationship with him. I didn't actually care about what he was like, but, like, you know, Noctis is not... They're not at odds, but they don't see eye to eye. And, like, because we know these characters so well, Noctis, Gladio, etc., that that's mm. why I had an insight and, and care about um, Regis at all, not because mm. of anything that the game has told me about. Because the game doesn't tell you much about a lot yeah. of characters in this game. There's a lot of names being thrown around, but your only kind of like tether to them is via these four characters. Absolutely, yeah. It's it's a very indirect way of telling everything, but the absolute bare bones of the overarching narrative, which is Arden wants to kill Noctis, but he wants Noctis to reach his full potential by collecting the swords of previous kings of Lucis, getting the gods on side jumping into a crystal and sort of turning full demigod and then there's going to be the final showdown to either defeat arden and save the world or arden wins and the world gets darkness forever and he successfully gets revenge i think it's really interesting like the evolution of this from 13 as well because you know 13's criticized just throwing a lot at you in general mm, yeah and not explaining it but like in this game they don't explain a lot of things either but they also just don't say a lot of the things to start with they sort of went down show don't tell but then they didn't show yeah <laughs> yeah exactly and you know they were i think they wanted to rely on like oh we're gonna be like bioshock and rely on people like piecing together the world from their interactions and we're gonna use like the incidental dialogue from these games and it feels like it's very inspired by like dot points of what people think thought was good design and this game early on in its design was going to not have explicit cutscenes yeah it was going to be all player controlled in the way that we were so anti take camera away from player in like the mid 2000s and i think maybe that could have worked but in the end i think that that's a really big decision i think even thinking about it and knowing that a few games tried to do that actually going without cutscenes is a really big thing to do in your game i, think. I can't imagine a square enix game without cutscenes yeah because uh, cutscenes are one of the strengths of these games yes so all of this basically means that when you finish the game there are these sort of two competing narratives of the exploration of the four main characters and then the overarching story which personally for me i found i didn't really care about uh <laughs> I was sort of being a bit chivied along by the game that was really trying to tell its story. And I think one of the big tensions in its storytelling is the genre, basically the idea that it was going to be wholly or in part an open world game. I think before we get into proper discussions about how they do that, because there is a lot to say, there's an interesting quote from Hajime Tabata, quoted in PlayStation Lifestyle in 2016, but I think it's from a different interview. And he said, while it isn't a pure open world game, uh, his quote is, it's important that the story progresses through the gameplay in a very unforced way in a similar way that it was done with the last of us for example and i read this quote out to rowan and blue before we started recording and it's a very weird quote i roll my eyes at it right there. I, like i'd already heard it and i still rolled my eyes at it because <laughs> last of us feels very forced in how it progresses especially yeah, I actually ended up playing Last of Us and felt great because I had been on a run of open world games and it was nice to have a game that was structured around its story. So so here's a, here's the difference here and I will like give you what I think Tabata is getting at here. Okay. Which is The Last of Us is character driven. 
right? They're making decisions because of the characters that they are. It's not event-driven. Things aren't happening to them. Mm -hmm. The problem is things just happen to Noctis. Yeah. Like, he reaches the port, he reads a newspaper, which, by the way, I love this scene because, like, in terms of, like, how he gets information, there wasn't this kind of epiphany. It wasn't this divine messenger. He reads a newspaper and finds out his father's dead. Right. And then there's this like quiet moment of, oh, what does this mean for do we go back? Do we it's a great moment, but that's not a character driven moment. That is a character that has had an event forced upon them. Mm. And it's made strong by the strength of the characters. Yeah. But I agree a lot of there is this really difficult tension between the character driven idea, which while it is really well done in The Last of Us, I think mainly because actually The Last of Us is a very well made game with a very tightly woven narrative, not necessarily because of the, the style of the narrative. I think fundamentally it's because it's a good game but character driven narratives can work very well in open world games because you've got the freedom to put the character in lots of different situations and see how the character reacts and you just let the character do whatever they want exactly but the problem is the main story quote unquote about chosen king saving the world isn't doesn't need to be a character driven story that is as you said it's an event driven story yeah. uh, where story beats happen and the characters have to react to it in in fact it is hard for that to be character driven because once noctis gets that news i understand a bit of waffling of like oh what do we do now but not 10 hours of me going off and just getting lost in the world like the the characters never get antsy about this deadline that's hanging over their head it doesn't make sense they're going to this meeting that is fixed in time they're not like maybe we need to hurry there like they don't even pretend to hurry you along and well well what did it mean that the father that his father died did it did it have no consequence because that's what it feels like when you just let the player run around for forever with no consequence and so I, I think last time, the first time, in fact, I appeared on this podcast, we were talking about open world narrative. And I really stressed this idea that urgency is a really tough thing to deal with in an open world game because urgency can work to build tension and it can really help with pacing to give a story that you are playing a part in a reason to move forward. And as I said, it can, it can heighten the drama that suddenly your home city is smoking and you are the king and your dad's dead. is dramatic and that can lead to a fleeing from your life thing. But in an open world game, the idea is that the bulk of the game is not urgent, that you need to be able to stop and explore the world. That's why things like good open world games, at least in my opinion, like Breath of the Wild, for example, while there is a conflict that you need to beat Ganondorf, Zelda has been holding him off for 100 years. So she can probably handle another, you know, three weeks for you to find some trousers and get a decent sword. Uh, or Horizon Zero Dawn, there are sort of two competing narratives of one that's happening right now, but that you're only sort of incidentally a part of. And then the uncovering of why the world is why it is, which happened 600 years ago. So you can feel like you're going at that in your own pace because part of the story is exploring the world. In this, the story doesn't really have any bearing on exploring the world because actually the events are happening here and now right now right now you've got to go and take your kingdom back and like, let me give this game some credit you know like, so i'm thinking of things like yeah for example going back to explore the smoking crater of your capital right you would expect noctis at some point to go maybe we should go back there and check it out they do but the game does it like in a quote-unquote organic way where if you rock up to it then noctis says maybe it's good for us to go back and look at it uh, actually in in the game they they find out on the newspaper and then they need to go and see whether Noctis needs to go and see with their own eyes. So they do actually go straight back to the smoking ruins of Insomnia. They don't go straight back, though. You can... They, oh. 
they don't go in, right? Uh, they don't go into Insomnia, but they go on a hilltop. Yeah, they just it. like look at it. But there's an imperial roadblock, so they can't get through. Because you can go back to that in gameplay, and like only at the very end. Okay, you can get no. You can explore the. You can explore the the blockade. Yes, yes, that's true. But you can't you can kind of explore the blockade, and like there is this like incident. Again, the game is good at incidental dialogue, and there's a bit of incidental dialogue that says let's like poke at it or something like that. Effectively, right? Mm. Of like you know we should know what we're going to get ourselves into eventually down the line. Hmm. But it, it like it's not like you're never like kind of like urged to go there and do it. They they try to make it up as if oh the player decides this is important. Let's give them a reason why Noctis would have wanted to go there. Hmm. Um, whereas I feel like in for example you brought up Breath of the Wild. The urgency is kind of hammered in every time you free a divine beast. Every one of the champion spirits goes, better not dawdle too long. Zelda is there waiting for you. That's that's good urgency. Um, so I, I feel like the urgency is put in the wrong place. It's put up front as opposed to at the end of a wrap up of a um, of an event. Absolutely. Because the game also, while it's not an official pure open world game, it has a lot of the trappings of an open world game, like with side quests. Uh, and sometimes that can be kind of awkward because you've always got on the screen sort of what you need to do next which makes it kind of difficult to tell a story in a in a very organic fluid kind of way or again the idea is that you're meant to be uh, a bit like breath of the wild building up your power so that you can take on the empire by collecting 12 13 royal arms which were used by previous kings but the story only takes you to four or five so you're going to have to spend a lot of time seeking out the others but the game never really gives you space to go and do that just tells you that you should be keeping an eye out for these royal tombs which are very well hidden and they're not relevant Noctis doesn't get an epiphany every time. Like, yes, he gets mechanical improvements, but narratively, he doesn't grow on getting these, you know? Again, in Breath of the Wild, you get closure every time you finish one of the old story beasts. You don't get that in this one. And I wonder if this is, like, one of the things that maybe in the version of this game that was they worship Etro and... Because this is, like, a very death-centric culture... So taking the weapons of the past should be also like, this is how you pass on the knowledge of the bloodline. And that may have been cut for something like that, maybe. It definitely feels like something more was supposed to happen with those dungeons. Because Noctis feels unready. Like, he literally says, like, you didn't teach me enough to, to the ghost of his father. Like, not the ghost of his father, but, like, to the memory of his father. When he finds out, there's this moment of just, like, I'm not prepared. What the hell? You were supposed to be there for a bit longer. I imagine that part of that preparation was supposed to be the tombs and the sword and the weapons not swords uh because in one of the scripted ones versions of those there's this i think throwaway line by maybe ignis of like this is supposed to give you understanding of your line lineage and stuff like that but it's not really explored narratively yeah and it means that when you make most of the other royal arms technically optional and also sometimes behind very difficult dungeons that would be incredibly difficult to handle before the end game it means you can't then make them part of the story so actually in the final battle you end up with all the royal arms whether or not you collected all of them when when you do your super saiyan thing at the very end you've got them all spinning around you because actually the game needs you to it have couldn't, it. Yeah, it couldn't make you lose if you only had four of them or something. I think another tension that comes in with this then, which sort of split a lot of reviewers and even players as well, was that this game has quite a strong division between its first and second halves. So the first half is, we might call it a more traditional open world, which you can explore mainly by car, which I think is another slight misunderstanding of how open world games work, that it makes exploring on foot kind of difficult, as well as going to this game's version of Venice, Altitia, uh, and having pretty much free reign of the city until you decide to move on with the story. And then after that, you're pretty much on rails, moving from environment to environment, still allowed to pretty much spend as much time as you want in these slightly smaller environments. But once you decide to move on, then you've moved on. Very literally, the train leaves 
leaves the station. And that means that you've spent sort of the whole first half of the game having to hint at the main story because it's difficult to tell in an open world setting, but really deeply exploring the characters. But then in the second half, you've sort of got to tell the entire story in half the time. And you can lean on the the relationships that have been built up with the characters. But it means, again, the overarching story, it suddenly feels like switch is flicked and suddenly you've actually got to care about the end of the world now. You're not on a road trip anymore. And it can feel quite jarring. Can I confirm something you just said? You mentioned train. Is the last half of this game like going from stop to stop along a train? Yes. (laughs) So it's... Like, not even jokingly on rails, it is, like, quite... Literally on rails. Literally on rails. (laughs) Yeah. So, the the thing that you can do, though, at this point is you can go back in your... I I know you can time travel with the dog. Like, that's fine. I'm just checking about the train joke. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, another... Yeah. Okay. (laughs) And it means... So, I personally preferred the second half because it lent into more of the scripted interactions, which are also very well written, generally, and the big cinematic set pieces. We, We said earlier before we started recording that Advent children is sort of a spectre that hangs over the whole Fabio Nova Cristalis series of a real hit in terms of cinematography and drama in battle. And this game has, while they're not necessarily difficult, really big set pieces fighting against gods with glowing swords spinning all around you and, you know, environments exploding and stuff like that. And this game can really explore some of those a bit more in the second half because it doesn't need to worry about where you are in terms of your character growth and stuff like that because it knows exactly where you are because it's put you on those places. It can also give you like hard caps of you're not like experience wise mechanically just strong enough yet because in the open world sequence you're like I can fight an enemy 20 levels above me it's going to take ages and it's going to give me no rewards and it's going to use up resources but it's like this weird open world thing and like in the linear section it can just be more like no you probably want to be stronger for this this is a fixed encounter. It's not optional. Uh, I will attempt to defend some of the notions here, which is that um, it wants to just kind of get this story through. And it feels like the second half is not this has made a decision. Now we can proceed as if he's just carrying through. He's following through. Right. It, it, it's somewhat like that where open it's open world because he was waffling. He wasn't sure about what he was doing. And then Altissia happens. And now he's he's committed. He's decided he's going to do this. Um, which, as you said, like that's good. That part of it's good. I just don't think he actually committed to a decision in Altitia, that's all. Um, and the flip side of that is, very likely, the story wasn't fixed in stone until very late. And so this is how it was cobbled together. And this is what it feels like. I did hear that there were initially plans to basically make the entire thing open world. But uh, in I think quite tellingly, uh, I think on the wiki it says story storytelling and budgetary requirements meant that yeah. they needed to streamline the second half. Budgetary I can understand, but I think that storytelling requirements really says something that they had sort of painted themselves into a bit of a corner here where they didn't really know how to tell the story. The, the tighter your narrative, the harder it is to give players infinite free reign. Exactly. Uh, and I think just to finish off this a little bit, uh, speaking of this transition from Altitia, which is kind of the end of part one, to the the train which is the beginning of part two i think that for me is one of the best scenes in the whole game because it is where actually one of those times when the story and the characters really cross together that in altitia you have been following luna freya around who is an oracle or the oracle i suppose who can talk to gods she is sort of heading around before you waking up the gods and asking them to lend you their power so that you can defeat the the big bad and so you're sort of following her around seeing hints of her actions but never actually seeing her 
She's a sheep to your link. Exactly. You reach Altitia, which is sort of a politically independent... It's Venice. It's sort of a politically mostly independent city-state, which is keeping her in their care, uh, which is also home to Leviathan, the sea goddess. And Luna Freya is going to basically perform a ritual which calls Leviathan who will not be happy about being woken up, is fully expected to pretty much destroy the entire city. So you, now as king, need to act like king in order to negotiate with the leader of Altitia in order to convince her that you this will be okay, that you're going to help evacuate the citizens in order to beat the empire, ultimately. Uh, and it sort of goes horribly wrong. Luna Freya is stabbed by Arden, who is, again, pulling all the strings with this. The empire come in and try to kill Leviathan because they're on a bit of a god-killing spree. And you are given the last of Luna Freya's power in order to sort of go Super Saiyan and finally beat Leviathan. And and then pretty much we almost completely smash cut to a bit of an Evangelionish. Noctis wakes up, Ignis is blind, we don't know why, and then we move quite smoothly on to them sitting on a train and you can feel the tension between these four guys who have been really, really closely linked in terms of incidental dialogue and battle. Suddenly it's all very, very, the, there's so much tension and it means in battles and stuff, suddenly Ignis, for example, is blind and still getting used to this. So he's a real liability now when before he's been really helpful. You actually need to spend half your time defending Ignis, particularly on the higher difficulty levels, than you do actually doing the fight. It's a really, really good section of showing you how these character relationships change and have reacted to a story point which in a sense worked in the broader narrative, but has sort of also gone horribly wrong. What's the time separation? Because there's a time skip. Uh, it is of a few weeks. This game has quite a lot of those as well for an open yeah. world game. <laughs> and it really feels as if the rest of the boys just didn't know what to expect in those few weeks and were starting to lose hope before Noctis showed up again. Yeah, and it means all these incidental interactions as well. For example, Ignis is going slower, so Gladios is getting steadily more annoyed with you if you run ahead. Prompto is also trying to keep the peace a little bit. It's just, there's a sort of, that half an hour section is a really, really good example of how well this game can tell stories. Learning how to be friends again. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, and so we've alluded to the combat quite a lot in this, so I think it's time to take that head on. So unlike some of the other games, it's about as far from turn-based combat as you can get. So this is real-time with a uh, sort of a wait mode where you can sort of plot your next action, but all your actions take place in real time. You're only ever controlling one character of your party, which is almost always the four friends. Sometimes characters come and go. And in the base game, you could only control Noctis. Like the original one, sorry. And later you can control, you can take control of individual other ones, but you're only ever controlling one at a time. So the other characters are controlled by AI. Each character has their own speciality and certain weapons that they can use, and also their own form of AI uh, to sort of match their style. While Noctis can use any weapons basically the combat is very heavily making sure that you get the feeling from the trailer or really wants the original trailer where Noctis is flying around he's teleporting to his swords it feels as if he should be omnipotent on the battlefield because he can just be anywhere strike anyone at any time that's some of that comes through because you can kind of like teleport away from the combat to regenerate MP like in, in a split second and then jump back in you have a lot of tactical control if you're just Noctis but what it ends up being is that it's not trivial this combat is not trivial it's if the enemy is at all like capable you're gonna spend a bit of time on it unless you like plan out like what you're gonna do ahead of time so it means that random encounters that were normally trivial in a turn-based one where you could just spam attack require a bit more thought that weighs a bit on the open world exploration sometimes i just run from combat because i don't really want to deal with it i also feel like when you said before of uh, the leviathan fight that was the moment in the game where i went oh this is what they want this game to be like this combat because the combat excels in my opinion when noctis is in the air aerial combat is where this game is really fun it does not give you aerial combat easily like it, it makes you work for it either to story beat or there's a quote this is a, it's like a limit 
ultimate break, right? Where he can go into like Super Saiyan mode and just <laughs> Armager. We should actually, I suppose we should stop just saying Super Saiyan, but Armager. Armager, yeah. I forgot the name of it. In the original game, without the extra DLCs and stuff and, and some of the updates, the free updates, you didn't have that mode where you could just have full reign of Noctis's combat power. Only had a like one use burst of damage. So it felt like they had a goal and vision for combat and they sacrificed that to get the game out the door in 2016. And we'll talk a little later about the updates uh, that made that possible. I think it's worth noting like, you know, the combat is kind of, yes, you need to like be ready for difficult combats and prepare a little bit or like they're not trivial, but it's not a difficult system to get to grips with. And I note that we haven't talked about is that this game opens with a very distinctive line, which is a Final Fantasy for newcomers and veterans, I believe. Fans and first timers. Fans and first timers. Sorry, that's the line. I think that's probably not a great line to introduce this specific game with, but I think it's telling for the combat that it is, compared to like the 13 saga, very immediate to get to grips with how to generally do things even if you can't master it immediately. Like 13, it has a lot of use of AI characters who you're not directly controlling. But I think in this, because it's AI and because this game was a little rushed, it doesn't always work too well. Sometimes it can end up as a bit of a sort of crush and just you're just sort of holding down the attack. But when it works well, it really feels incredibly organic. Uh, we sort of alluded to the combat building on this storytelling, telling the relationships between the four characters. But for example, if you're positioned near another character, you can perform a link strike where for example, you'll, I don't know, stab your spear into an enemy and then chuck it back to Ignis, who will then jump off your shoulder for another one. There are really good moments like that where where everything really comes together in a way that's not so explicitly cinematic like the Leviathan fight, but nevertheless feels very smooth and very cool. Even though it's not difficult, it is undeniably really fun and satisfying. It feels like you as a team bring down an enemy rather than everyone spamming attack. And it makes sense to the strength of Noctis, which is, oh, he can be anywhere on the battlefield. That means that you can try to position yourselves near your teammates if you're looking out to encourage link strikes. Yeah. Mm. Uh, another aspect of the combat I think that we need to mention that we haven't talked about is magic in this because that also I think carries over with my feelings of magic in the general series that magic is quite dangerous in this. It is basically an elemental hand grenade where it's a very powerful indiscriminate force uh, which can wound and kill you and your allies if you're not careful. This is a game actually where your positioning in battle matters a lot more than than it might initially seem. So if you want to use magic, you only have uh, a limited use and they're a consumable item that you can make by picking up elemental essences from around the world. They've got quite a long cooldown time in a game where almost nothing has a cooldown time. It's an interesting exploration uh, of a system which is common to basically all Final Fantasy games where magic is something that normally a character has sort of complete control over and is just sort of another form of attack in a fantasy setting. But in here is something really quite dangerous and something to be saved and thought about before you use it. That's my piece. I'm moving on a little bit from combat but in that realm of ai and automation i think it's really important to talk about prompto which is one of the characters of your party and he is a photographer he likes taking photos of things it's his one of his core defining traits and this is an ai based system that around the release of this game was really big like a lot of people enjoyed looking through and uploading the photos he took it added a lot of personality to him and your team with what photos he took. And also it helps, I think, the open world side work, like the little bits that I play. Built the road trip. It, yeah, it, it works, makes the road trip work that you go out, you stay the night somewhere and you look over what you did that day. 
And that loop was really incredible. And the AI for that works really well. Even the flaws of it become features. When he takes a bad photo, that is very prompto, as much as a good photo is. This is uh, contextually around this time. This was the year where photo mode was becoming common and popular in RPG in open world RPGs like Horizon Zero Dawn's particular photo modes. It's gorgeous. And, um, you know, a lot of games around this time would then start to have photo mode with a lot of control. And this is like a very interesting attempt where you can stop and take photos, but it's actually the AI that has direct control over the camera. And there's a really great GDC talk that I'll put in the show notes for this. But I think that this function really helped develop the Choker Bros, as we've got in the notes. They're like dynamic. The friends in this group are really enhanced by that. And at the end, it even like is a big narrative point. You pick like one photo from the trip, don't you? Mm-hmm. To put as in the your king. Pocket. Yeah. And I think with that, we're going to take a short break so that you can refresh your minds a little bit. And we're going to talk about the expanded idea of 15, both in the live service context, DLC, additional games, media, and so on. So as we've alluded to a little bit, when 15 came out, it was a specific experience. And over time, that experience expanded. It both expanded through updates and it expanded by just being a big universe. And there's a lot to the 15 universe, some of which comes out before it, some of which comes out during it, some of which comes out after it. There's also like parts of some trailers that are also canonical in the universe, but not in the games themselves. There's a lot to the 15 universe. You have a nice list that I'm sure you're keen to just read out (laughs) i'll see if i can do this in one take yeah so in the official final fantasy 15 universe we have eight games four dlcs with two more initially planned and then scrapped six anime episode two demos one of which the platinum demo is a prologue one short story which is also an audio drama a manga a feature film and a novel and the novel is the most recent part of all of this so that's 14 years of content (laughs) it's a lot most of which condensed to about five years of content yeah that's the ish part that i was it's it's an interesting one and i know that a lot of people did consume all of it but most people did not the general play audience of final fantasy 15 i don't believe they consumed all of it some of it sure and some of it serves interesting roles like the brotherhood anime the six episode anime the five episode anime originally it was a pre-release thing they announced all this was coming out you could watch brotherhood in the lead up to the game coming out like it was a monthly episode i think in each month of the year before it came out on the lead leading five months or whatever like it was a part of the hype cycle some of this stuff but in hindsight it makes it hard to get into it if you didn't like if you bought the royal edition two years after it came out and didn't consume this as it was coming out you're more likely to be lost yeah this game really starts to feel like it is made as i think we said at the top of the episode this is a game that sort of gets made for the people who were following it along since 2006 whereas particularly if you pick it up now while the main game is a lot more polished it's not really clear what you need to have seen or played or read or listened to or 
download it in demo form. It, it feels like it needs, you know, those footnotes in comic books where it says this event in issue, this spectacular, fantastic. It almost feels like it needs those footnotes every here and there in the game itself. And what's a shame is that, like, cause I like Western comic books that have that kind of storytelling, but those things are always like, you can tell the story by itself. And if yeah. you want a bit more context, you can. The impression I have of playing this game in a longer form is that for a lot of players, it didn't feel like, oh, for a little bit of extra context, I can do this. It's for the context. Yeah. Yeah, I can do it, this. It very much feels like they're they're talking at me as if I was there to watch them slit the throat of this person. I have no idea what they're talking about. There is, well, so there were initially talks of sequels quite early on, only just sort of hints, but instead they very consciously moved away from the Final Fantasy thirteen style of two sequels into this kind of multimedia experience. And the idea was is that fifteen was to be the core game and everything else was going to be potentially standalone, but filling out other sides of the universe. In reality what that ends up doing is it means almost everything needs to start a player off from scratch so it spends a very long time explaining its context to give you a little bit of a tidbit to help understand the main game whereas the main game ends up kind of leaning on all of this stuff it doesn't become supplemental information it becomes homework really i think particularly the film which is i think designed almost as a an opening cutscene made into a hour and a half feature film you get a few clips in the game basically with watch the film flashing underneath <laughs> One of the updates more or less added a segment of the film to the full version, I think, didn't it? Like when they get the newspaper article, the phone call, whatever, the the announcement that the kingdom has fallen, I think from the original they added a bit of Kingsglaive to give you context for that moment. And that, if anything, slightly confuses things because while it does... It doesn't have any shots with characters who only appear in the film. You know, it, it really gives you the hint that a lot of stuff has gone on that we're not going to tell you about. So watch the film. And it's also in an art style that's not even matching the CGI art style of this game. But this, it doesn't. It doesn't say watch the film because it doesn't say there is a film. Very so true. So you might assume, as a player, possibly correctly to assume this. Oh, they're going to tell me more about this later, and then they just never do. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but yeah, speaking about the updates, the base game that launched in 2016 is very different to the game that you would get if you bought and downloaded and played it now. Uh, do you want to go over some of the things that have changed? Yeah, sure. So uh, it's it's actually even quite difficult to keep track of these updates because there are regular updates, which will be you know available to download for anyone who's bought any version of the game, uh, including an enormous day one update. And then there are also versions, namely the Royal Edition, uh, which brings the console versions, I'm going to try and get this right, the console versions up to spec with the later PC release. Uh, and adds quite a lot of extra content. And that's a paid uh, edition. Or if you bought it now, unless you bought the game secondhand, you'll probably be buying the Royal Edition. So a lot of these updates, I think it's quite unusual for a game. Certainly, I've never come across games like this. Well, obviously, nowadays, updates and games are reasonably common. They tend to focus around quality of life issues, life issues or bug fixes or things like that. Whereas this actually does add quite a lot of storytelling, uh, particularly through, as we've said, putting in clips from films and uh, a certain trailer, the Omen trailer as well, has some clips. It also tries to give you a bit more context in the world by adding quite a lot of conversations, which are basically just, what do you want to know? And then it asks some questions about, who are the Empire? Who are the gods? Who is Arden? What is the problem here? What am I meant to be doing? Why should I care? Uh, <laughs> and I mean, it's, I suppose, the best you can do without remaking the whole game. But I found those, while they definitely serve a purpose to catch you up, 
a little bit jarring, you know, in a game that's trying to tell a story in, well, lots of different ways. They need to often lean on basically some data logs quite a lot. And they also scatter a lot of supplementary information, introducing you to uh, different environments. Each one nowadays has a few paragraphs of text explaining what it is sort of lying near the entrance to each dungeon and things like that. There's a lot of stuff like that, which is meant to try and flesh out the dialogue, remind you of a character who you've probably forgotten about, remind you why you should care and things like that. Something else that was interesting, again, which I've not really heard of, and I think really speaks to the more open development cycle of this game, is after release in one of the earlier updates, there was actually a survey screen where players were asked what they wanted to see more of. So by this time, we had already had DLCs announced. I'm not sure of the exact chronology if any DLCs had been released by this point, but there were things like, I want to see more of Arden's backstory. I want to learn more about Aranea. I want to learn more about the power of the crystals or Solheim, an ancient civilization, which is alluded to several times. So players could actually choose what they wanted Square Enix to go into more and that uh, ended up being reflected in things like the episode Arden DLC. Mm, and that DLC was really influential like a lot of people I've talked to about this game like in all the prep that I've done for this every time I mention it someone's like oh I really wish the episode Ignis was in the base game oh I really wish the Prompto's episode was in the base game because they came out they took a while to come out all the episodes and like their moments when the characters leave your party and then come back later with a mysterious scar that says buy the DLC on it. Yeah, some of these transitions are better done than others. Gladiolus, while the story itself is fine, it follows him seeking out Gilgamesh in order to be a better protector for Noctis, which, as we said before, these DLCs often give those characters a bit more depth. His his shift into the DLC is basically, he says, right, I'm off now. And then you do a chapter and then he comes back and says, cool, I'm back now. Here's the scar, which does feel, even though Square Enix promised that they hadn't cut any content for the game to make the DLC, does rather feel like they had cut some content in order to justify the DLC. Yeah, yeah. And then episode Ignis uh, and Prompto are both, I think, a little bit better. Uh, they do better in, for example, Prompto, as we've said, maybe we didn't say, I don't know if we were recording. Episode Prompto does a bit better in explaining his backstory. There's the sort of revelation that he is actually a clone of one of the imperial scientists which is handled in about 30 seconds in the main game for such a big revelation Mm -hmm. and which in your dlc you are basically following prompto as he learns this and starts to come to terms with it and also he's just been kicked off a train by noctis who while admittedly was tricked is a pretty tough thing to have happened uh, from your best friend and then episode ignis which is undoubtedly the best one i think uh follows the events in altitia of ignis trying to evacuate the citizens and also why he gets his sight taken away which is basically that he sacrifices his life in the end just his sight in order to try and fight off Arden and save Noctis and I think that really really adds a big depth to his character and I think there's a part of this like early on we had this quote from Tabata being along the lines of we're going to get the game out in 2016 with the budget and time we have and I get the impression that a lot of the DLC development time was really getting the other characters to function, giving them their own mechanics to be able to play as them independently for their DLC, which was then brought into the main game. And I wouldn't be surprised if that was part of the initial plan that just couldn't be done in the time frame they wanted. Yep. Yeah. But I think it was it wasn't cut. But it was like, we know that we can't fit this in the schedule. So it's like shifted rather than cut kind of thing. It was taken out of the base scope. I would like to take this opportunity to kind of say here as well, the game is of a very good quality. This is yes. not a cobbled together game. It doesn't feel cobbled together. Certain story beats might feel misplaced or whatever, but story is very hard to do. Mechanically speaking, this game looks good, plays pretty well, and yeah, all things considered. Like, yeah, again, just just wanted to like re- re- reiterate, we don't hate this game. 
we are we are like ba- we, we are a bit bashing on its on its flaws but like yeah it's a very interesting game its flaws are easy to talk about unfortunately correct but do keep in mind this is actually a very pretty game and is gigantic in scope we wouldn't have spoken about it for you know the amount of time we just have if we didn't have there wasn't some really great things that keeping us there to it yeah. All right. Sorry. Just minor derail. Let's move on. Yeah. So uh, the DLC episodes as well, as we've sort of said, it, it introduces you to how these characters handle as well. And they're each made by a different team, which I think is really oh, really? nice. Yeah. Yeah. If you watch the credits, they're made by, say, Team Prompto or Team Ignis, uh, which I think is nice, each with their own directors and composers and things like that. So it's another way of, again, really giving you a sense of who these characters are by how the music works, even things like how the UI looks, uh, as well as how the characters handle. They are they are actually quite good ideas ideas for a dlc i think uh, as a way of fleshing out the main story that isn't actually necessary but does give you more context i think in terms of all of this universe thing those three dlcs episodes gladio uh, gladiolas ignis and prompto are probably the most successful mm-hmm. episode arden on the other hand i don't know if you guys have played it have you certainly not especially not for the cost that it is i think here's a good enough point to mention uh, final fantasy 15 costs a lot to get into like completely to get into every facet of it it's not a cheap experience yeah it is it is not cheap you're going to be paying quite a lot uh and if you only buy one i mean we've told a lot of the story by this point but still if you only buy one buy episode ignis episode arden came as a second round of dlc basically so they were originally only going to do those three covering the other three main characters but because they were so well received there were originally going to be three more so episodes arden noctis and luna maybe luna freya probably they used her full name part of this from the survey is in response to the desires and requests of the users the problem with episode Arden is because they sort of felt like they had told their whole story from some quotes, they thought with Arden they were willing to go a little bit beyond and move into a bit more what some of the other Final Fantasy XV universe media is, which is telling a separate story that has bearings on the main game rather than directly fleshing out the main game. For me, I felt that Arden was a reasonably well-explained character, not an especially difficult to understand character, who, unlike most things in this game, basically builds up some suspicion, cool, and then in one short speech, in one dialogue explains who he is, why he wants to kill Noctis, and why he's been letting Noctis get as far as he does, which is that he wants Noctis. He wants to kill Noctis as the true chosen king, not as some kid who just happens to be in the royal line. He was originally going to be the first king of Lucis, but instead, because he was a healer and took on uh, all the demonic energy of people he healed, was rejected by the crystal and his brother betrayed him instead. And to me, that makes sense. Uh, <laughs> in episode Arden, you go through this again with another anime episode, 20 minutes long, to introduce you to the DLC. And then you play as Arden in a very chronologically weird time when you invade Insomnia, the capital city, and try to king kill King Regis a short time before Noctis is born. And then you have a great fight against your brother, who's meant to be the first king of Lucis. And you sort of wreak havoc in this city, which is then never mentioned at all. And you'd sort of think, remember that time when the evil demon king, who's also the chancellor of the empire, came and destroyed the whole city, you know, 15 years ago. Feels like the sort of thing that would be mentioned in this game. I don't know. Noctis does allude to the fact that the father is like never telling him anything. Maybe it's... I get the feeling like Noctis didn't get an education. Like Regis just kind of like put him in the cupboard under the closet under the stairs and just like you'll be fine he wanted noctis to enjoy his youth but he didn't 
Although we know from Brotherhood that that's not the case. Yes, yeah, but- Noctis is such a broody <laughs> child. Like, But yeah, Arden, I think, goes a bit beyond by actually taking one of the few simple characters and just muddying the waters. And I think making things a lot harder to understand behind his motivations than actually easier. But those are the DLCs. <laughs> Very in keeping with Square Enix exactly. and Extended Universe. Yeah, a lot of this is just piling more stuff on top of the core story rather than getting to the heart of it and explaining what we were going for all along. And with that, do we have anything more to actually say about the Extended Universe? We've talked about Brotherhood very briefly, mm-hmm. um, but haven't gone into too much depth. I don't think we've got... I think we're done. Are we done? We're, do we need to write a separate... I mean, there's a lot we haven't said. We'll, we'll work out the season pass for Platforms and Pitfalls, Fabulous Nova Crystallis later. Exactly. With that, let's move on to the summary. Okay, then. We're almost at the end of this. Stick with us, folks. Uh, let's <laughs> quickly go over what we talked about today and then cover what we talked about in these past two episodes. This has been very, very dense. But here is an attempt at a summary of all of this. We started this episode talking about Final Fantasy Type-0, which you know, used to be called uh, Final Fantasy Agito when it was still part of the Fabula Nova Crystallis. I mean, it's still part of the Fabula Nova Crystallis series, but when it was part of the main, like, franchise that square was putting its weight behind and that game is ambitious uh it had a gigantic cast of 14 characters which it wanted desperately for you to care about each and every one of them that probably won't work out quite that way themed around this dark bloody setting of war the horrors of war death as a as a big core tenet of this world it's just this beautiful game across designed across multiple pieces of hardware that may have been ahead of its time with a story that hits so many different beats that is that gives you feelings of like it's very clearly high fantasy but has this kind of sci-fi aesthetic to it where it's trying to make you understand core human qualities basic human qualities on the backdrop of like sophisticated technology and it's so eminently final fantasy uh yeah that's type zero it's my turn to try and summarize Final Fantasy XV. So as a game, I think it tells us what is what it takes to escape from development hell. This is not a game that they spent 10 years making. This is a game that they spent three years trying to salvage. Uh, and it's impressive that they ended up with what they did. Like Type-0, and actually like all of these games, its ambition is a really defining part of it. Uh, it makes us think about how many supplements you can have to a core story before they become homework, and indeed how big a story you can tell in a game. Furthermore, it teaches us always a good way of looking at what sort of stories work in games and how storytelling can work, particularly within certain genres like open world games. In that story, it also helps be a bit emblematic of some of the overarching themes of Fabula Nova Crystallis. We've got strong sense of fate and duty and also really cuts down this sometimes quite weighty terminology heavy mythology into its core themes of ambiguous gods and dangerous crystals. I think it's also interesting as a comparison with Type Zero how Type Zero with its enormous cast seems to be about its characters but actually it's far more concerned about the world and the story that it's telling whereas Final Fantasy 15 succeeds very well with its characters at the cost of trying to tell its overarching world narrative and with that I get the easy part of just talking about the entire FNC in a short summary (laughs) so I think the defining thing that links all these games together is not how they deal with fate or how they deal with the role of crystals and the unseen realm 
It is ambition. All of these games wanted to do some very impressive, ambitious things. Each of them wanted to do different things that are ambitious. They weren't all going, we want to be a big world. That was 15's thing. Type 0 wanted this like big choice driven thing originally. 13 wanted this like elaborate, immaculate combat system to emulate Advent Children. All these games just had such ambition and scope. And all three of these core pillars, at least, were in many ways hamstrung by technology and by hardware. Type 0 being limited by mobile phone technology and then the PSP. 15 and 13 both having issues with crystal tools and in the end crystal tools shifting to suit 13 and then 15 taking on an entirely new engine that brought its own terror to it. All of these games were were hurdled with a lot of expectation at them. They all had to carry on the Final Fantasy name. Each of them was a successor to a thing that people didn't like a lot. 12 wasn't, was, you know, disliked by many at the time. 13 was going to come in and save us. Type 0 was going to come in and save us from 13. 15 was going to come in and save us from 13 again. In some ways, that wasn't really the case. And this whole Fabula Nova Crystallis series has been a shadow over Square for the last 10, 15 years. 16 is the first non-Fabula Final Fantasy announcement we've had for almost an entire decade. Single player, that is. Single player excluding FF14. And all of these games in very interesting ways struggle with how to manage player freedom, I think, as well. Like, 13 offers you very little freedom. 13.2 improves it. Lightning Returns, a full open world. Type 0 adds a lot of, like, time management to it to let you explore with restrictions. And of course, 15 goes for the full open world as is in the embodiment of the last generation of consoles in many ways. Have I missed anything? I I would almost add that uh, (laughs) in your big chain of different things saving uh, us from other games, in the end, Final Fantasy XV was trying to save us from Final Fantasy XV with all its supplemental stuff. And also, we love these games. We do. We we are so nasty about these games through basically the whole of these two episodes, but actually we love them dearly. I feel like... We're very positive on the 13 episode, honestly, about a lot of what we talked about. Like, we bring up a lot of flaws, but I think overwhelmingly, like, it has this issue, but in this one, we tended to spend a little bit less on the, the but of a lot of this stuff. But I think, you know, this was born out of your passion, Jack, for 15 in many ways. Yeah, this means I don't need to think about it for another few months, but it'll come back. I genuinely love the 13 games, and I've probably spent, out of any game that I've played, like, more time thinking about the 13 trilogy and its design than maybe anything else gaming related. There is a lot to unpack. I don't know what Blue thinks about anything. A lot of this was new to you, really. Yes, a lot of this is completely new to me. And if I can add some foreshadowing here, I will say this. The Fabulous Nova Crystallis and its effects and legacy are not done. And in time, we may come back to this because 7 Remake is very much the spiritual, proper, actual success to this. Yeah, the 7 Remake incorporates a number of things from 13 and 15 and maybe Type 0. I haven't played that. <laughs> haven't played the remake to know. So we'll see. We'll see what time says about where Square decides to go on this journey. Fabulous Crystallis was not a thing by the time we hit 2010. Like it just wasn't going to be this massive franchise they wanted. But it's very obvious that they're continuing to learn from it. I think I may have said this off the record, but I will say this on the record as well. I almost wish Seven Remake wasn't good because I'm just like, no, you can't make games that way to all of Fabulous Crystallis, except that the end result is now 7 Remake, which is good, so at least they're learning. And I mean, Square set out, when they announced Fabulous Crystallis, they said, we want this to be a set of stories that last 10 years. They announced this in 2006, and 15 comes out 2016, 
and the last book comes out in 2020 in English. So they actually got four more years than they expected out of this whole ordeal. Like it or not, they succeeded. <laughs> yep, yep, and yep. at that, I think that you, dear listener, got much more out of this than maybe you wanted in terms of time, maybe. Maybe not emotional benefits. And with that, thank you for listening. It's been really fun doing these episodes. We know that they're against our classical form. And hopefully next year, now that everyone's good and healthy again, um, we can go back to some regular episodes and do what we love. But it's been a great pleasure having you here, Jack. Thank you very much. It's been a pleasure, as always, to just kind of vomit words about Final Fantasy XV for hours on end. And should there be a sequel, we'll have you on again. <laughs> I'll never escape. And with that, if you wanted to contribute to the discussion, you can tweet at us um, at PlatinPit. You can email us or look at our Facebook page. All of that's in the show notes. If you enjoyed this show, consider recommending it to a friend or even review the show in your preferred podcatching app. Before we finish up, let's reveal next month's topic, Double Jumps in 3D Games. We'll be looking at Sonic Adventure 2, Mario Odyssey, Jumping Flash, Doom Eternal, and Devil May Cry 5. If you have any thoughts on these titles, we'd love to hear them and possibly include them on the show. You have until the end of 2020 to submit your thoughts. And with all of that, thank you so much for listening. Thank you for listening. 